land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a podcast by The Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of The Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast and uh, thank you so much for joining us and um, a bit of a different episode today and um, we're on a mission to become Australia's most trusted property podcast and we're going to do an episode today on really the, the insights and the mindsets around the baby boomers really and um, pre-retirees and retirees and their attitudes to, to property and, um, and, and some of their challenges. So we thought a, a great person to talk this through is um, Jamie Nemitsis. Hopefully I've said your surname right there. Yeah, drop, um, drop the T, Jamie Nemitsis. Nemitsis, there you go. Um, it's a, always probably catches people out. Um, you, oh, know, you should lots try of, living with the name, mate. Uh, there's a T <laughs> in the middle of a, a word that's pretty easy to say. Yeah, yeah, might need to uh, just change on the on the depot. Um, I guess um, it's been an advisor for a long time, worked with retirees for a long time, done lots of other things which we'll unpack uh, a bit about today and conferences, businesses and all sorts of things. But, you know, we haven't had an episode on this. I think it's an interesting discussion where, um, you know, there's a huge uh, amount of Australia's wealth, I mean, the world's wealth is is with the baby boomers, right? The I think the youngest baby boomers getting close to 60 now. The oldest one's probably getting close to 80, right? So, Correct. you know, it's where, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the wealth is sitting. And um, I think it has a huge impact on the residential property market and the other markets uh, as well. So so before we get stuck into it, Jamie, maybe you just give me an understanding of sort of who you work with and, you know, some of your experiences and how long you've been working with this type of clientele. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the business I joined in 1999. The business was originally founded in 1971 by Austin Donnelly. Austin Donnelly, Donnelly was really a critic of the financial planning industry. He was an educator. He wrote 50, 50 books in total, wrote for all the major yep. papers. But you know, this we're talking about 50 years ago. He had dealer's license number one uh, in Queensland and essentially 
kind of founded the the concept that advice can be independent and without conflict. Yeah. Um, so I I joined AMP in '96, learned how to sell for three years, and then thought there was a better way, you know, to build a profession and sort out. This firm was called Donnelly Money Management back then. So mm. essentially our client base, um, and it took a while for us to really understand this, that rather than being a general generalist, a, a GP, we would be a specialist and we're a specialist in retirement. So we're not great in, you know, some of the areas that property is phenomenal uh, at helping people accumulate wealth. We don't necessarily do that. We're about de-accumulating wealth and helping clients through that last 30 years of their life because retirement is quite long. So we don't do, you know, we don't we, we don't do mortgages per se. We don't we don't really do insurances to any great degree because most clients that come to us are 55 yeah. plus and they've got a pool of capital and a typically a weird and wonderful collection of assets and we're trying to put a red thread through those assets. Yes, I mean, I think that's it's interesting. Um, so you've got people who are thinking about it. So 55, they might be thinking, I'm going to work another five, 10 years. And, you know, hopefully they come to you when they've got 10 years, not three years to retirement. Um, I mean, when I was an advisor, it used to frustrate me when someone was coming to me at the, you know, the final hurdle and saying, what can Absolutely. I do to, to solve, you know, I want the magic pill. Um, but, I mean, what's their attitudes around um, their home and debt and, you know, going into retirement with debt and, and their investment properties and, you know, do they, they become, what's their attitudes around residential assets at this stage versus, because they're quite different to how someone thinks about property, you know, even 10, 20 years before. Sure. Um, so perfect client would be a new client I saw this morning um, and we we're presenting a financial plan. They had 10 real estate assets, mm. um, relatively geared, done incredibly well for them. You know, they've accumulated a few million dollars and now they're thinking about, well, what does retirement look like? And and to start planning around how do you build a diversified liquid portfolio that produces, you know, five or 6% yield without the the, the risks well, without the ramifications of you know um, property taxes and maintenance etc so just clean yield for retirement then it does take some planning right the 10, 10 properties they've all got gains on them you need to sell them down their superannuation balance because they were so aggressive in property is quite low so they've mm. kind of got five years to try to work out how they and the rules in in terms of contributing money into superannuation are quite hard now you really only put one hundred and ten thousand dollars extra so what does that look like so you sold down a few sell down one every year minimize the capital gains still hold real estate inside and outside superannuation at retirement but it's Essentially, they have a pool of assets which are diversified and reduces some of those risks. Of course, those risks have probably accumulated their wealth over that period, but 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 once you've got the wealth, you need to hold it. So therefore, you've kind of de-risking their portfolio in a way. Yeah. So a, a lot of the um, you know holding money in stocks and in their super and you know much more liquid, much provide a much better yield. And they've, they've, even though they know that residentials work for them, do you find that a lot of them are happy to let it go? If they're actually, you know, freeing up liquidity and, you know, the, the, the stress and worrying about maintenance and tenants and things like that, or do you find that a lot of them really want to hold them as long as possible because they have worked for them and they have got capital gains taxes and things like that? Is it is there an attachment there that's sometimes hard to break? I mean, I think it depends horses for courses. People either love property or they see property as a, you know, kind of a tool to accumulate wealth. I see that um, people get tired of holding direct property. 
so you know there's a period where where, where you we do leverage aggressively and you're buying some really good assets and you're seeing some capital gains but by the time they get to me you know kind of 60 they're tired of the tenant calling them about fixing the window they're tired you know about upgrading the house and that's the income that disappears they're kind of there is a a length mm. lifestyle property is different people love lifestyle right so there's the the other part of my job is juggling too much lifestyle property uh, which is resi and they love it so typically a beach house and a house in the city and you know that's consuming 70 or 80 percent of their total assets and you know how do they live for the next 30 years but and also keeping these lifestyle assets um yeah it's a really good point so i was, was going to take the direction so I do feel there's a, you know, like you say, with holding investment properties and and that's as a business, you know, when clients come to us, you know, 50 plus, it's really hard um, to to say that residential property is the right move. We, we, we don't do financial advice anymore. We'll pass them back to advisors because they are lumpy assets holding into retirement, you know, that you can't really sell down half a property and where you can sell down your shares when you need them, you know, they, um, you know, maintenance issues, land tax can start to kill you, et cetera. So, but when it's their home, how do you think their attitudes around, you know, the downsizing and um, and whether they actually do it? You know, a lot of people, their kids are around, got grandkids and, you know, and, um, you know, they don't want to leave their house because they've got their friends and then, and they can't find. So what do you, what's your experience with people actually downsizing and, and people going to retirement and their, their desire to do so? It's probably split 50-50, right? So 50 will never leave their home. And nor will that, and they will adjust their income needs in their life because their home is them. It's a representation of them. And mm. even if they see the house depleted, they will still stay there. The other others see it as you know very strategic to move somewhere new, new property, new ideas, new friendships, new groups. Mm. Um, a lot of times it's hard to extract value these days. You know, I live in a suburb called Canterbury, and you know we live in a house 900 square meters. But if we were to downsize the the apart the apartments and the and the townhouses aren't much cheaper than what we've got because they're so mm. popular. There's so many people wanting to downside. So you know, you nearly need to move suburbs, which becomes hard, right? So once mm. you move suburbs, then it, it, it's totally totally new. Um, suburbs are changing too, right? So again, Canterbury probably didn't have many townhouses or many um, apartments in it 15 years ago, and now you know there is a lot. Um, as, a, as suburbs change, as the age, um, people love buying property. Even the even the guys that retire and sell all their residential property, and we, we deal with relatively wealthy clients. There's always the the love of property doesn't go away. So then mm. they're trying to encourage their their children into property in any possible way. So buy your first house or buy an investment unit. So they, they've done incredibly well out of real estate. And even though they've changed, you know, the mix of their portfolio because of their age and their income needs, they are still encouraging their family to buy property. A lot, we see probably two out of every three um, of our clients help their children get into real estate in some way. So they could be a, a well, we, we kind of try to protect our clients. So it's essentially a loan um, to buy into real estate. So the, the the passion of real estate is still there. I just think maybe mm. people get a bit tired of it and they, they want to see some certainty in retirement as you've only got a finite pool of capital and, you know, you can't get any more. What's the income that's coming off that? And, and what's so you've... Um... Obviously, I mean, dealing with that baby boomers, do you feel like that 
residentials being their, their biggest you know, contributor to their their net wealth? I mean, besides the people who have potentially got businesses, I mean, you know, that have maybe sold businesses or do you find that, you know, a lot of the wealth of your customers has, has come from, you know, just buying homes and buying investment properties and, um, and paying them off versus, you know, direct share investing or starting businesses? Yeah, absolutely. I think they real estate is a good a good example. Drew and I were talking about this the other day. So we've we've got about fifty new clients that have come to us in the last twelve months. Now, forty eight of those clients didn't have advisors. Um, they come to us in their sixties and they have a collection of assets, and it's a very you know they've they've got a share portfolio that's been inherited from their mum mm. or dad. And, you know, they'll have CSL that says 600 grand and I'll have a whole heap of other stocks that say zero um, or, you know, 10 grand, 20. So it's, it's, it's a very mismatched group of stocks. And then they'll have their house they've done relatively well with. They bought a property at some point, fine. They've got a beach house, maybe business premises. So, and then they might have a windfall from selling a business. So they've got some cash as well. So they're wealthy, right? They're three, four, $5 million clients, $6 million clients, but they haven't necessarily got a, had a strategy. They mm. haven't necessarily thought they were wealthy, right? They weren't mm. measuring it. Inheritance comes in, a sale of the business comes in here and superannuation that they've been paying into for a long period of time, finally kind of I know it's not the right words, but it kind of matures and yep. now it's their money. And then they go, oh, okay, what do we do with all these pools? And and property always always is 50 or 60 percent. Mm. I think we, we talked about am I a bull or a bear in real estate and I'm probably neither, but what I like to understand is drivers of real estate prices. And, you know, over the last 30 years, really, property prices like equity prices have been driven by one thing mainly and that's that's the um the fall in the bond rate you know when i went to university the the value of any asset was a discounted cash flow of future future cash flows by the risk-free rate and the risk-free rate has fallen from what 15 to got down to two or three percent so any asset that gets valued off the risk-free rate goes up and the easiest one to be exposed to was real estate, right? We were all exposed to real estate. We'll all, you know, we'd gear 10 times to get into a house. So, of course, real estate over that boom of the last 30 years has benefited, you know, a lot of people over that journey. Um, if you were exposed to CSL only and you geared 90, yeah, 10 you, times, you've probably yeah, done pretty well as well, right? So, yeah. gearing is, you know, that's what's great about real estate. I'm sure you talk about it on your podcast all the time is the ability to hold a lot of someone else's money against an asset, you know, to borrow 90% against that. If you borrow 80% against that investment property, you're probably deemed to be conservative. But mm. it's if you did 80% against a stock, one yeah. specific stock, you, you'd be, you know, deemed to be very, very risky or probably crazy. So, um, and so, I mean, I've, I guess you've seen thousands of people um, and over time you, like you say, I mean, you've talked about the drivers of capital growth potentially being interest rates there. I mean, you've got income growth in terms of, you know, back in the 80s, you know, it was maybe only dad working and then it was mum was working part-time, now mum was working full-time and, you know, generalising here and, um, yeah, banks, you know, servicing's gone up through the roof, you know, we could borrow seven times salaries versus, you know, four times salaries. Um you know, just the desire to own property. I mean, we just haven't got a great rental system. It's like, 
you, you, you're basically forced to buy, you know, even if it doesn't make sense on a very low yield and it's cheaper to rent, we, we just can't take that bet a lot of times. So there's, there, there's a lot of things plus a, you know, growing population, et cetera. But what's, what's, what have you seen that's worked for your clients? Like, what, have you built your own property philosophy where you've seen that hasn't worked for a lot of clients and, and these are the things generally what do work? Uh, we, we would be, uh, as a firm, we would be a value-orientated firm. Yeah. And we would look for opportunities. Now, that being cross equities or funds or debt, and I think it applies to real estate. Mm. You know, there's specific pockets that we've always thought were incredibly um, attractive. You know, we always thought um, Rye down on a peninsula was a phenomenal asset. Um, you know, you could buy for half a million dollars three, three four years ago and you would be – uh, two blocks from the ocean, and given that Australia, Melbourne's going to be the biggest biggest city in Australia, an hour from Melbourne um, makes a lot of sense to buy a property there. We always liked North Richmond because we thought, you know, if you think about all the suburbs around Richmond, so again, being really selective about areas, being kind of value based, um, we like buying land. You know, essentially. My wife is a property lawyer and she's done lots of things. She tells me never to buy an apartment because, you know, the ramifications of uh, yep. if, if a foundation falls over or something is really, really hard. So land has, you know, been, been an asset class that we, we like. Um, yep. So if a client says to us what kind of real estate should we buy, you know, there, there's set rules, you know, 10 kilometres, 15 kilometres from the CBD, um, as much land as you possibly can. That's the thing that's going to going to grow over time. So it's um, so so there is rules, and I'm sure you can give mm. me some more ideas about what's great in terms of buying real estate and what's not. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a story about real estate, which is when I first worked for AMP, I worked for a financial planner, and he he got himself in a bit of trouble, but he was selling real estate to doctors, and he he. I ran a financial planning firm and he basically was selling real estate to doctors. And at the time, um, it was Jan Summers' cash flow model. It was yeah. all about free cash flow. Yeah. And and he would make 8% commission. And I'm a yeah. I'm non-commissioned guy. I like fees yeah. being direct, right? But anyway, yeah. and um, he was always into me about buying this place on the way in, in Surrey Hills on the way home. And we had a blow up because he wanted to charge me 8% commission. It was a $350,000 townhouse. It was like... Yeah. Oh, how, how's that justifiable? How's it justifiable to your client? I now drive home every day past this asset and it's worth $3 million. <laughs> and you, you kind of think, well, who was right? Was he he right or was I right? So, you know, it's it's with, with a bit of time, you get to reflect on some of these assets and how they're valued and mm. go, well, you know, markets do change and they change a long way. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, and I guess it's the, the right comparison there is, you know, back in comparing if you spent 300000 whatever it was back then and you could have bought 
number of different properties. Maybe what this this chap was recommending may not have been. Still looks on paper look like a great decision, but was that the best property back then? You know, and that's I think a lot of people look at properties on an individual basis when not comparing them to what was actually the most optimal decision back then. Maybe you could have bought a house just down the road, or and that would have been worth even more, etc. Yeah, I think um, time's very forgiving with property, but it also, you know, doesn't, it also highlights where, you know, different properties perform at different rates over the longer term. Um, I mean, I guess that you spoke about something interesting. You said about, I think it was two thirds of your clients do want to help their children or they're they're, even their grandkids, I guess, you know, they're getting into their 2030s. What's their attitudes to doing so? Is Is it only if they've got enough money for themselves or even the clients that, feel like they may or may not have enough they still want to help their kids so ultimately a lot of and are they are they doing it now um you know proactively um or are they trying to do it only on death yeah you only teach what you know right you can't teach things you don't know so i think real estate especially the home has been such a fabulous asset for the baby boomers they want to impart what they know onto the next generation so and good point. Do they have enough money? So the wealthy clients find they'll lend fifty, hundred thousand dollars in a loan agreement to buy that first property. Others will use the equity in their house and put up their house as collateral, so you don't have to pay mortgage insurance and get started into real estate. There's a, there is a real passion for the baby boomers in real estate. I think um, so. It, it's real estate does create some problems in estates, though. So when do they do that? Typically, they do it before they lend money to the next generation and a generation after that before they pass away wills normally only go to the next generation they don't really go to the generation after so your grandchildren and wills can be really complicated around a real estate asset so biggest baby boomers have fallen in love with real estate Beach houses typically create a lot of issues. Who is a big portion of their estate? Who is it left to? Who has first option? If it's led, you know, if it's left to three people, that then goes to the next generation that might be nine people. Blair Gowry, Rye, Sorrento are full of all these properties, mm. right? So there's nine custodians of this asset. That becomes we, – we typically try to get our clients to make a decision to exit a family asset before death because mm. there's there's been so many arguments and fights in estates about who gets the asset or who who uses it more who looks after it so as much as you're trying to leave a legacy in real estate then it you can create a lot of issues you can be clean and clear in your will though joe gets the first right to this asset mm. joe and if joe doesn't do it, then it's up for grabs or you can be really clean and clear which probably resolves some of it, but real estate is um, especially a beach house. So the family house typically doesn't have as much emotion yeah. around it. People just sell it like, you know, mum and yeah. dad pass away and it's for sale next week. Um, but typically a house like a beach house or something special, has it always creates family issues. And what are your sort of thoughts on, um, you know, kids, I guess, asking their parents for help and, you know, and their grandparents, for example. I mean, we, we do a lot with the, the younger generation, right? We um, That's what we help people do on the other end of the spectrum. We help people buy their first homes and upgrade, et cetera. And sometimes there's this apprehension to ask, but then, you know, it's a bit of a, the, the parents do want to help. What's your thoughts around giving advice to younger people on how they should ask and and, and, and what's the best way to, to ask for help if, you know, if their parents can help? 
Yeah, so we've been doing a fair bit of uh, work around transfer of wealth to the next generation, what's important. And when my clients think about transfer of wealth, they start thinking about um, the will and the mechanical elements of the will. But there's lots of elements that you should consider rather than just the documentation. You know, and education and probably timing, education and love are really important elements. So when do you transfer your wealth? And when do you, especially baby boomers, you know, we've got clients in their 90s and they're, and they're, and they're, they're just outside being baby boomers, but they're in their 90s yeah. and their children are kind of 70 waiting for the inheritance. You know, it's, you can see how, so, so I think the timing's really important. So when are you transferring it? I would always, if you, this is advice to the, um, to, 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 to your clients, how to approach with their parents, it would always be about, can we get an interest-free loan? You know, I think that's how I would ask my parents, can I get an interest-free loan for some capital? I know that, you know, you obviously have some money. We would like to portion. Do you want to go in partnerships with getting into real estate? Would you take a portion of your superannuation money and be a joint owner with me? How does that look like? I mean, it's always money. We know money is not talked about in families enough. Yeah. So that's about educating up and educating down. Yeah, it might be showing your parents examples of what other families have done to help the next generation. Um, and then this kind of teaching, um, it's not just getting real estate um, people started, your children started in real estate. It's also education and love, teaching them about real estate, you know, that you do have to you pay your rates and you do have to fix the windows and, you know, uh, you're the type of landlord that may, keeps the asset in perfect state or you're one of these landlords that just says, well, the land is the value and I won't spend a cent mm. unless I have to, right? There's, I'm sure you see the two camps yeah. and they're probably equal. They're both equally successful. Um, so, you know, how do you educate your children or how do you get your parents to open up and talk about their real estate journey mm. and what they know about real estate? It's been their biggest asset through probably their whole life. So they, they'll know a lot about real estate. They just probably don't know they know a lot about it. Mm. Yes, yeah, so that's some good tips there. I think that, you know, I guess people, someone listening to this, right, if they are in that sort of younger generation, they're doing the right things, I believe. They're educating themselves on, you know, what works, what doesn't work, the mistakes, the risks. You know, they, they might go and speak to a broker. They understand how lending works, what deposit they need, how far away they are. Um, and I think they're all great things when you are going to ask for some help because you've, 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 you're looking to borrow money, but you're not just looking to go and, you know, buy any property and you just hit and hope, really. You, you're trying to come things at smartly. And I, I think you're right, trying to engage your parents in their journey and what's worked for them and, and how you're potentially going to give that money back or, you know, and rather than just potentially saying, I'm going to do it my own, I'm not going to ask for help, um, because I do believe there is a real desire for that baby boomer to help their kids, right, um, if they can. And, and a little bit for them can also can be a lot for the kids. I guess it's just how you go about that conversation is, is, is important. Yeah, I think accepting that your children mightn't live or you mightn't live in the same suburb as your parents is something that parents can help with because I think we put too much pressure on our children to live in the same suburb. Um, and, you know, the, the, my, our, so I can put my hand up and say I probably bought in the wrong suburb 15 years ago because it's full of, you know, old rich people and not young families, right? So there, the, there was a demographics problem straight away. So realistically if you can help your child say well why don't you move out where it is 
bit cheaper. There is more community-based. You know, I think that that helps as well. And, mm. and for your clients that are listening, you know, you don't, you don't have to buy in Hawthorne or wherever your parents are. You can move to a new location and they are. Spend some time in that suburb and understand there is pros and cons. There's lots of pros some cons, but lots of pros in some of these new suburbs that are being built. You know, you can afford to buy an air and you can afford to have three children and you can do lots of these things as your parents would have done 50 years ago. But, you know, Chadston mm. was a suburb that was a long way out back then, you know. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think the, um, the showing that you're willing to make compromises and, you know, you don't just want the, the dream assets straight away and showing that you are actually saving and you've been saving for a good six months and you've got a plan and, you, you know, you've thought these things through rather than just asking for the money before all doing that work. I find that um, you're right, guarantor loans is something to really consider. We, we're very hesitant on that option unless it really suits the parents' um, plans and brothers and sisters and there's a real exit strategy there on how we're going to get out of this guarantor um, yeah, okay. in a reasonable time frame. But I, I think it's a really valuable conversation and it's give some good tips there for the younger generation i mean on the super conversation um we get a lot of younger people come to us who have got a decent amount in super and some people will be listening to this and you know like you say it's, it is it is uh you know compounding a lot for people they're putting in you know they're 20 25 grand a year and you know a couple of people are working they've been doing it for a good five ten years 20 years so um but they get excited and they want to go down the residential property space in super what's your you know, as an advisor, you've seen thousands of super funds. What, what's your your thoughts on buying residential property in super? I don't love it. I'm, I'm the same, so that's okay. <laughs> you, um, it, it's a complicated structure you've got to set up, and a lot of people overcharge you for that structure. And then essentially, debt 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 will cost you more. Um, and and it's one specific asset for what's supposed to be uh, a diversified portfolio that has various risks, but, you know, a kind of minimal risk to get an outcome, which is retirement. I talk about the journey of life in financial planning, and if you don't do anything wrong, typically you retire pretty well. You know, you don't have a lot of disposable money. Um, you don't necessarily uh, have big lump sums to invest, but you know, if you save for your house, you buy the house at the right point, you get married, you educate your children, you contribute to your superannuation the way it is now, uh, you pay off your mortgage, you get to 62, 63. If you haven't it and you've got it, some kind of little inheritance that comes in, maybe a little windfall, you're going to be pretty close to being right to retire, right? It's the mistakes that blows everyone up. Mm. And I've seen them, I've experienced them, I've done some of those, you know, being overconfident on one area, over gearing into a complicated structure like superannuation that you mightn't be able to get extra capital into because of the structure, you know, betting on one area, not multiple areas, not using tax advantages like depreciation for your benefits, you know, not minimizing your taxable income. All those things are kind of mistakes and mistakes are hard to come back from. You know, you kind of set yourself 5, 10, 15 years. Um, we've got, you know, I've got mates at Footy Club and they had a great property portfolio, but him and his wife become unemployed and they couldn't get a job for a while and then, you know, it just went pear-shaped and they had to, they ended up going, you know, declaring bankruptcy on a, on a real estate portfolio 
which in 15 years on, they'd probably be worth have equity of two or three million dollars, right? Mm. So they did all the right things, but they didn't really think about contingencies. They didn't have enough cash buffer. They made a mistake. And, you know, they're kind of my age now struggling and go, well, I could retire in 15 years. What do I do? Problem is they want to take more risk, right? So you, then you're likely to take another, mm. um, make another wrong call. So if you can try to you know, make right decisions, we're all about trying to help people make right decisions. This is what this podcast is about. But then also be aware that mistakes hurt, you know, um, and they hurt psychologically and they hurt financially. Psychologically means probably you won't get back and buy another property or another investment for a few years and, we know that being active and making active decisions in investments is the best thing you can do um, versus freeze up and not do anything. I think that's superb advice. I think you're, you're bang on. I mean, I think the the simple things, just, you know, paying a mortgage off, dollar cost averaging into your super fund, you know, just, um, you know, just saving, starting a small investment portfolio, maybe buying one quality investment property, not trying to buy three and hot spotted and do a duplex and um i think you're right i think the people who um you're right they do make a mistake and then they often will make a similar mistake because they get in this i've got to make up for that mistake that loss aversion that pain and then they, they complicate they made two mistakes and then they go again it's like in a casino it's just constantly trying to um, make money back what they've lost and i i think you're right i think when you whether you're approaching um residential in your home i think people have got to be have the mindset of trying to minimize the chance of making a mistake you know the minimal risk and um and things that you know that could basically wipe them out for example um i see that happening with people you know 70 80 percent of property investors have gone one property um you know often they could go and buy a second they don't because the first one's not really working for them you know and um a lot of them end up selling it you know three to five years down the line they they didn't realize the place needed a lot of work that it's you know I didn't think it through. You know, they just, you know, um, you know, not irrationally, but impulsively just went and bought an investment property because they went on holidays or something. Um, and so uh, I think that's really good advice. And I think if you have, you know, made a mistake, it doesn't mean you should never go back to that asset class. I see this with, you know, with shares. I think people have bought shares, they've lost some money or they saw their super go down, they put the money in cash or they never go near shares again. Never it's, go near shares again. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. We were talking about this last night. The market will always give you a win first, right? So probably the market in real estate will always make sure your house goes up and then, you know, what you want to do is go and buy an investment property. But um, I, th- I think um, you know, re- real estate's a really fascinating asset class because you can physically touch it, you can see it, you can live in it. Um, people in Australia love it. Um, so there's always going to be an you know, a love for real estate in our in our, in our core portfolios. Yeah. So I mean, I guess um just to sort of wrap us up today. I mean, um, I mean, what's your sort of take on the um, being a lot of uh, doing a lot of work in the retiree space? There's been a lot of target on super. I thought it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on you know these new super taxes and I guess the attack on superannuation. What's what's your sort of thoughts on what's happening there? Yeah, I mean, you carry. We talk about um, risks and legislation risk is always going to be a risk. It's a risk for real estate investors as, you know, the so Victorian government's out of out of uh, revenue. Um, yep. So they're, they're going to potentially think about increasing land tax, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, superannuation is a $1.5 trillion pool of capital. It's probably more. It's probably... Three trillion now, yeah. um, without no tax on it. So you would think at some point, 
Um, there's going to be – it's pretty easy to increase a tax rate on superannuation. There's – as they are by capping it, by capping it essentially they're saying more money will be taxed. Um, yeah. There's no no death tax in Australia where there's a death tax in every OECD country in the world. So I'm pretty sure it's coming at some point, right, especially on real estate as the baby boomers you know, start transferring big lumpy assets. How do they collect their tax off that? Um, especially if it's not realised, so mm. it's called death tax, it, it'll come in for sure. So I think, I don't know how much time we have, but the way generally I've been thinking recently is Donald Rumsfeld made that fantastic speech about uh, known knowns and known unknowns and unknown unknowns, right? So no knowns. So think about, well, I put my money in a term deposit, and I get 5% for a five-year term deposit. I know if I buy real estate, it's kind of not a known unknown. I know it's been a really good asset. I don't really know the outcome, but I kind of know enough about it. Yeah. And then there's these unknown unknowns, and it's kind of like, will another GFC happen? Will there be an earthquake? Is there geopolitical pressure? Will the government start changing the rules? I kind of don't know. Mm. Maybe you can get it to be a known unknown in a way because you think the government's running out of money, but who knows, right? Still not sure how mm. government gets their money. Um, so I, I don't. All you can do is try to hedge those risks. So when you know that there's a kind of a known risk, you can hedge it. You can't really hedge an unknown unknown. So something like um, legislation risk, we would say superannuation should be about two-thirds of your assets. You should have one-third and two-thirds. Uh, so one-third in your own name and then two-thirds out. Mm. The way that this new legislation is going, anyone, if it's passed, still still some debate if it'll get passed. Mm. But if it's passed, if you've got more than $3 million in your superannuation account, there's 80,000 of them, I think, in Australia, 80,000 accounts over $3 million, then you know the practical step is you withdraw it, then you've got to put it in an entity. Which entity do you put it in? You've probably got between you, if you've got a million dollars, you might split it between you and your wife. If you've got over a million dollars, you're going to suggest a trust, a company, or kind of an insurance bond. So, mm. you know, essentially the government is trying to tax us more, and there's a million ways. They've got this fabulous thing called GST, which we kind of forget about, right? So, the mm. easiest way to get more money into the government is just increase the GST rate, which they haven't really done on us yet, but. They will. Mm. So think about the risks. And, and I think this is how we approach, I approach all investment portfolios at the moment is what, what do I know to be true? What do I know to be, I don't know, which is okay. You don't know real estate's going up or down, but you know, that's okay as long as you don't know it. And then what are the things that I can't control and I can't put into my portfolio? So you know, um, does, does that answer the question? It's no, I think of, you've actually nailed it, to be honest. I think it's really, and it is um, relevant to resi real estate because you're absolutely right. I mean, you've got uh, $10 trillion, let's say, circa in resi real estate. Um, a lot of it's growing tax-free. A lot of it's, um, you know, millions of dollars in your home and still get the pension, um, you know, and there's, there's, there's a lot of little... Uh, amazing tax advantages with resident. Like, I mean, low uh, land tax is a, is, a, is a big one as well, right? No land tax yeah, in absolutely. your home. Um, you're right, no inheritance tax. And so your governments around the world, um, you know, and the Australian government in a lot of debt um, with a lot of um, ageing population and things like that and, and raising taxes is, is you know, always going to be um, something they're going to look at, especially of people who have got wealth. So, um, yeah, legislation changes and how that could affect your properties is something to really think through. Um 
And yeah, maybe it's an unknown, it's an unknown, you don't know, but at least you've thought about it um, and, and how that could affect things before you um, just assume that legislation will change to stay the same forever. So, Jamie, thanks for so much for coming on. I do think yeah, no that problem. retiree, pre-retiree, the intergenerational wealth transfer is something that's going to start popping up more and more. And um, I do think there's a conversation between the, the generations needs to happen a lot more because, um, yeah, there is that that change happening. Yeah, love your podcast. You're doing a great job, mate. So um, thanks for having me on. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jamie. Cheers. Cheers, buddy. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.